man, I, I can't believe I'm here actually to tell you the truth. Um, it is so God right now that I just feel, like Rachel said, she felt like God carrying her. That's how I've been since yesterday at 3 o'clock. I just felt God just was like, yep, because... Um, I said yesterday that part of the reason for doing this conference is because I want to invest in your life and I want you to find your purpose. And in these last few weeks when I've been struggling with my health, um, I've had this conversation with God that I know what my purpose is. And it's exciting when you know, God reveals that to you, but my purpose is to lead the women of this church and to invest in them, and to love them, and to pour into them. And that's what we do at this conference. And so I was getting really mad. Like when, um, it was funny when Charlotte was talking about praying for Noah in his room. Oh, I have been doing that all week long. I'm like, devil, this is my purpose, and you are not going to steal my purpose from me for this week. So I just want to say sometimes you got to fight. Sometimes you got to fight for your purpose and your destiny and it's not always going to be easy. But I am here to tell you that when God puts something on your heart, he will see it come to pass. So I just don't don't give up the fight because it's not going to be easy. But this morning I, I want to talk to you about joy because that's the theme of this conference, joy unspeakable. And joy is actually a fruit of the Spirit. And in Galatians 5, it talks about it in verse 22 and 23. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think it's safe to say that joy is one of the most elusive fruits out there. Because... Um, we just really don't understand what it means sometimes. It's very misunderstood because we tend to equate happiness with joy, right? And happiness is, comes from a completely different source. Happiness comes from the world. So if things are going great, we tend to be happy, right? If um, things aren't going so great, then we tend to be unhappy. Um, if people are treating us right, you know, everything's good. Joy, on the other hand is spoken of in the Bible, and it's a very profound, compelling quality of life that transcends the events and the disasters which may occur. It's a divine dimension of living that is not held down by circumstances. The Hebrew word means to leap or spin around with pleasure, and in the New Testament, the word refers to gladness, bliss, and celebration. So to have this fruit of joy ripen in our lives, we have to recognize the journey involved in getting there, because it really is a journey. It takes time, diligence, and patience, and hard work for fruit to grow. Even think of grapes on a grapevine. It's, fruit is not instantaneous, because it, you have to overcome weather, and bugs, and weeds, poor soil, and neglect. So likewise, just in our journey of joy, we're faced with waves of apathy, right? Like Charlotte talked about last night. Pessimism, doubt, despair. There's no way that we can manufacture this joy on our own. If we want to see this joy, this fruit ripen in our lives, we desperately need the Holy Spirit to be pruning us and taking away the things that hinder our joy and then empower us to make the choices that move us closer to a lifestyle of rejoicing. 
We need to guard against the things that steal our joy. And in Galatians, um, before Paul started talking about the fruit of the Spirit, in chapter 4, verse 15, he said, what has happened to all your joy? And I think that question needs to be asked in the church today. What has happened to all of our joy? William Barclay has said that a gloomy Christian is a contradiction in terms. And, and nothing in all religious history has done Christianity more harm than its connection with black clothes and long faces. Right? So let's take a look at three ways that are big joy stealers or joy busters in our life. And the first one I want to look at is unsatisfied expectations. Isn't that a huge one for us women? I know for me it is so huge. Don't you, like when you're getting ready to go on vacation, don't you just set, you know, you're just so excited, you're thinking, and you set like these crazy expectations, like it's going to be the most amazing thing ever, and I know I've done that in the past, and you know, you kind of come home from it and you're just kind of let down because you set these crazy, unrealistic expectations. Maybe you're just kind of discontent with where your life is at right now. Maybe your marriage isn't where you want it to be. Maybe your kids aren't living how you want them to live. Maybe you don't have everything you want. Maybe you want a better house or a better job or even a job for that matter, right? But I'm convinced that a spirit of discontentment can rob many of us of our joy. Listen to what Paul discovered, the secret of being content in Philippians 4 verse 12. He said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in, every, in, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And it's interesting to note that Paul calls contentment a secret. There's a mystery about contentment. He said we have to learn how to live with unsatisfied expectations. And we need to learn to live in plenty or in want. Because contentment doesn't come when we have everything we want, but when we want everything we have. Isn't that good? So speaking of unsatisfied expectations, I thought I would just share with you my, the last six weeks of what I've been going through. Um, six weeks ago, I went in to have my gallbladder removed, and I met with my surgeon. I'd had, a, I'd had a few gallbladder attacks. I knew what they were. My parents both had theirs removed, and I, they're just really uncomfortable. You feel really bloated, and it's just awful. If you've ever had one, it's just... So I knew that's what it was. I went and got tested. Yeah, my gallbladder's not working. So I thought, okay, what do you do? You have it out. So I met with the surgeon, and he's like, oh my gosh, this is so easy, standard, laparoscopic, we don't have to cut you open, just a few little incisions, bada bing, bada boom, it's gone. I'm like, okay, well, what about my diet? You know what? He's like, you can eat whatever you want. He's like, you're going to be fine. I'm like, why didn't I do this sooner, right? I'm like, this is great. So those were my expectations going into surgery. And he said, you know, three, four days, week max, you're going to be totally back to normal. So I'm like, this is great. And I'm thinking, in my mind, I put three days because I had the surgery on Wednesday and I had a wedding on Friday night. So I thought, you know, I'll be at the wedding, no problem. So Wednesday, I went in for surgery, and I hadn't had surgery before, so... Um, found out that the anesthesia totally did not sit well with me, and I got very, very sick from the anesthesia, had a hard time waking me up, um, was there for several hours longer than they said I would be there, and I was just so sick that they gave me these little C-bands to put on your wrist that help with nauseousness, and they put this little patch behind my ear that kind of would help with the nauseousness, sent me home. 
and was just really sick. And then a um, couple days later, I'm not being able to see anything. Like, I, I can't read, and I'm thinking, oh my word, you know, I'm losing my sight. What is going on here? Well, then Rob read the little something about the patch, and it said it dilates your pupils. This little, little patch that for, the, for the nauseousness, right? So for three days, I could not read, I could not see anything, I couldn't see my phone, I couldn't read my devotions. I mean, this was three days of that, and I'm just like, this is ridiculous. So anyways, I'm still sick, I can't eat, I can't see, I'm just a mess. <laughs> and then, um, I think it was about day five, I woke up Saturday morning, and I was having a really hard time breathing. And I was just taking these really short breaths, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is crazy. So what do you do when something's happening and you don't know? You go to Google, right? <laughs> so, so I Googled hard to breathe after surgery. <laughs> and, and what comes up but a collapsed lung. It says sometimes after surgery you can get a collapsed lung. So I'm like, Rob, I have a collapsed lung. <laughs> We have to go to the doctor right now. So he's Saturday morning, you know, he's driving me to the hospital. I'm like, this surgeon was so wrong. I was just so angry with, you know, my expectations were not being met here. So day five, I'm in the hospital. They take x-rays, and they said, okay, here's the deal. When you have laparoscopic surgery, they have to pump you full of all these gases because they have to be able to see in there what they're doing. Okay, which makes sense. Well, then where are all those gases going to go? They're going to still be in your body, and they're going to cause pain everywhere, and they're gonna ca there's a big line they could see on the x-ray of these gases that were causing me to have problem breathing. So, great. Gases, all right. I got the gases. I got the... I can't see anything, you know. So I can't eat, you know, I've just, I'm just a mess. And so anyway, it's a week after my surgery, and we had a sparkle meeting at, our house, at my house that night. And all the girls came over for the meeting, and all of a sudden, my insides, I'm telling you, it felt like there was an explosion, and they were on fire. And I was literally at the meeting, the girls will attest to this, I was sitting like this at the meeting all night. I'm just like, what is going on? It just felt like it was on fire. So that was a week after. So that's coming and going. And I'm having a good day and a bad day. And uh, two weeks after surgery, we were scheduled to go to New York for some ministry. And um, the day before we left for New York, I had a good day. And I'm just like, oh, finally, two weeks. This is it. I'm back on the road to recovery. I think I'm going to make it through New York. So the next morning, we get on the flight. And about halfway through the flight... All of a sudden, I get this excruciating pain, not the gallbladder pain, not the fire pain, different pain. <laughs> no, different, just a really, really sharp pain. I'm like, okay, so I'm kind of leaning over in my seat, you know, all the way there. And we get there, and I spend the rest of the day in the hotel, just kind of doubled over. And the next morning, we're going to go out for a walk because we're going to go to Central Park, and it's a beautiful day before the ministry event starts. So I get halfway down the block, and I'm just like totally doubled over. I was in so much pain. Back to the hotel. Anyway, our, pretty much our whole New York trip was me in pain. And I was so thankful that one evening um, I wasn't in pain, and that was the evening we actually had scheduled to go to the U.S. Open, which was one of my goals in life. I always wanted to go there. And so I'm just so thankful that God blessed me that night with being healthy enough to go. So it was, it was a great night. Next day it got worse, and then Sunday morning Rob was preaching at a church in New York. 
And it was, um, they didn't have a building, so they were meeting in just a building in New York. And by this time, I was crying. I was, you know, doubled over. So I ended up um, on a couch down in the basement of this building in New York while he was up preaching. And I thought, Lord, what is going on here? You know, I want to be up supporting my husband. So anyway, the, the, our music team was with us, and um, the ladies were, I could see they were so worried about me, and they were praying for me, and I said, I do not want to go to the emergency room in New York City. <laughs> I'm like, Burnsville is bad enough, okay? <laughs> I'm thinking, what is going on here? So I'm like, Lord, please just let me make it through so I made it through Sunday, laid on the couch all day, and then we caught the earliest flight out Monday morning and came back. I mean, I'm laying in the cab, I'm laying everywhere, but we make it back here. I was so thankful. So we spent all of Labor Day in the ER. Super fun. <laughs> but, um, and they took a CT scan, and they're like, oh, everything's looking good, 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 good. Whoa. They found a big cyst on my ovary. And, and, you know, at first I was like, oh, you know, cysts on ovaries, they come and go, you know, whatever. And the doctor in the ER was like, you know, this is a dermoid cyst, it's five centi over five centimeters, and we're gonna, you're going to need to take that out. And at that time I thought, take it out? You mean like have another surgery? And so I was so scared because I knew what I had just come through the past two weeks. And I was like, oh, I don't think I can handle another surgery. So, you know, Rob Azari's like, we're going to get through this. We got to get it out, you know. So um, I had the second surgery that Friday. So Monday I was in the ER, had surgery Friday. And um, this time I'm like, no patch. I want to be able to see. <laughs> so... I learned no patch, but then there was more of the other, very, very nauseous, um, actually worse the second time around. Um, but you know, you learn, and the first time my mom's called and said, I'm coming and staying with you, you're having surgery, I'm like, Unre unrealistic expectations, right? Mom, don't even come, couple days, I'm going to be fine. Second time around, mom, yeah, come on. <laughs> uh -huh. So my mom, who is sitting right over here, is so amazing. She came and stayed with me for a whole week. And she just fed me and sat with me. Oh, so my mom came and stayed with me for a whole week. And I learned so many things. I learned I have the most amazing friends in the world. Um, I know Christy and Sally have just been bringing me food and books and cooking. And they set up this little room um, for the conference and they brought in my slippers and they're just amazing. And just so many friends that have, that have stopped over and the prayers, I can't tell you. I'm sitting here today because of the prayers of, of all of you and those, I mean, around the nation, our friends in ministry that have been praying for me. Um, because it's just crazy. I really still don't know what's wrong. I'm just not able to, um, I have no appetite. I'm not able to really... Um, I've lost some weight and haven't been able to gain anything back. So um, still not really sure what's wrong. Um, but I'm just, I'm here and I'm just so thankful for that. And, and whatever, whatever happens is... <laughs> um, 
I was like, okay, Lord, you really want me to learn this before I teach this, you know? <laughs> Joy despite the circumstances, right? So I can tell you when it comes to unsatisfied expectations, I am so there. And I am eating gluten-free, and I am taking supplements, and I am doing all this stuff, but um, just trying to get better. So the second thing that can steal our joy is unresolved conflict. Now, I could not say anything better than what Charlotte talked about um, in that first session. It was just absolutely incredible. But it's true that our joy evaporates when we allow conflict between ourselves and another person. And when someone's offense against us occupies our mental and emotional attention, we have nothing left over. And anger clouds the eyes of our heart, and it obscures our view of God, and it drains away our joy. In Hebrews 12, 14 through 15, it challenges us not to allow those relational issues to fester because the bitterness can set in. And it says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So I'm just going to leave it at that. She covered that so amazing this morning. We just can't just keep itemizing people's mess-ups, okay? Because the fruit of joy will be squashed in your life. And Paul recognized the link between joy and unity in Philippians 2.2 when he said, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and purpose. All right, the third thing that can steal our joy. Oh, sure, I can't even have the platform for one time. I'm just going to give an update. She is fine. Okay. And uh, she passed out. She said whenever she hears about medical things, she passes out. Aww, and sometimes in the doctor's office, she passes out. So she's fine. I'm just letting you know. And we're glad. I didn't even get gory, did I? And did I? You got an assist on that one, but I just said, she's fine, she's fine. I'm glad she's fine. (laughs) Oh, man. You know, you go over these things in your mind, and this just never, never occurred to me. Apparently, she's okay with beheading, though. That's Yeah! Seriously. Wow. (sighs) Okay. (sighs) Unconfessed sin, number three. The third joy buster it's, it's perhaps responsible for chasing away more joy than anything else because guilt can just kill your joy, right? Sin can send joy far away. And David understood this very well when he was um, attempted to ignore the promptings of the Spirit. And in Psalm 32, 1 through 5, it said, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. 
And I love how this psalm ends. Because after David owns his sin, his joy returns. Notice in verse 11, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. So he was not able to rejoice and experience the joy of the Lord until he confessed his sins. And it's very similar to what David wrote in Psalm 51, 7 through 8. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Now, Billy Sunday once said that the trouble with many men is that they have just enough religion to make them miserable. Because if there is not joy in religion, you've got a leak in your religion. And God not only wants to restore your lost joy, he also wants to cultivate those things that will build lasting joy in our lives so we don't have any leaks in our religion. So how can we experience this joy? I think one way we can do that is just to recognize God as joyful. We can be helped greatly on our journey towards joy if we learn that he's not this almighty taskmaster, but he's the God of the universe with a smile on his face. When I first read Zephaniah 3.17, I had to read it several times because it was just a new thought. But listen to how God feels about you. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. God delights in you, and he breaks out in song when he thinks about you. Isn't that amazing? I love how the Living Bible paraphrases this. It says in that same verse, Is that a joyous choir I hear? No, it is the Lord himself exulting over you in a happy song. I love that in the Living Bible. If we have little or no joy in our lives, it could very well be because we don't know God well enough. Because joy is one of his character qualities. When we recognize God as joyful, we will be even more drawn to him. He's not this aloof judge that's somewhere off in the distance waiting for us to mess up so that he can unleash his fury on us. He has created us to be his delight. He finds great joy in you. He exalts over you in a happy song. I think as we view God this way, we'll discover that he takes great pleasure in us. He is the good gardener who toils over us with constant care. He waits patiently for his fruit to ripen, and with great joy he longs to gather in the harvest. In everything he undertakes, that sweet satisfaction in all he does, his joy can be transmitted directly to us by his Holy Spirit who lives within us. That's exactly what Nehemiah discovered in Nehemiah 8.10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I don't know how many times I claimed that verse over these last six weeks. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And I pray that you'll experience that joy as well. And the, le- the next thing we can do to get that joy is just release our problems to the Lord. One of the hallmarks of Christian joy is that it can be experienced in the midst of intense sorrow and loss. Just like you heard Rachel and Pam talking about losing their husband. What could be something darker than that? But he brings joy in the midst of that. And often we define happiness as the the absence of something undesirable, such as pain, suffering, or disappointment. But Christian joy is the proper response to the presence of something desirable, God himself. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. And after they were severely beaten up, they were thrown in prison, they had stocks put on their feet, and they were in the inner cell. And in Acts 16, verse 25, it says that Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. 
And the word there for praying doesn't mean they were like making requests or petitioning him. It meant they were singing and praising. Instead of asking God to get them out, they turned this tough situation into an opportunity for rejoicing. This reminds me of um, a Bible scholar from the 1700s, Matthew Henry, wrote in his diary after being robbed one day. He said, let me be thankful first because I was never robbed before. (laughs) Second, because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it was not very much. (laughs) And fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. Isn't that amazing? I love that. I just happen to have one more quote here that I'd like to read out of a really interesting book that I just read. (laughs) Called Change Before You Have To by my husband. It's his first book and actually comes out next week to the church, so we're super excited. But there is an amazing section in here that I just had to read because it fit in so perfectly. It says, isn't that interesting that the joy of a better future will motivate people to change while fear will not? Note how God's word describes the strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. We just read that, Nehemiah 8. It doesn't say the fear of the Lord is your strength. It says the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of making God happy. The joy of living an abundant life. The joy of being what he wants us to be. That's our strength. Are you catching this? It's a, be- it's a vision for a better future. It's us saying, God, I want to do what you want me to do, and I want to have the joyful life, the God-filled life, the life that doesn't worry about my outward circumstances. Joy is independent of all those outward things. You're saying, God, I have the joy in my life because I know who I am, I know where I'm going, I know that you have a plan for me and a purpose on earth. And I have a vision of making a difference and being more like you as I go through this life. And ultimately, someday, I'm going to be with you in heaven. But right now, I just want to keep changing and being more like you. I want to make you smile. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So the only way to have that kind of thinking is we just got to change our attitude and release our problems to the Lord. Because, he, because he's in charge, we can have joy no matter what happens. And Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 7, 4. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. And James 1, 2 challenges us, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. You know, I never really understood that verse because I always thought it meant, oh, when trials come along, you're supposed to be happy, right? And that's not what it's saying. It's saying you still have that solid joy in you that no matter what happens, you know. And... That's just something that I've really learned through all this and through this time of just, you know, crying out to God and praying for my healing and claiming my healing and just surrendering everything to him, just abiding in him, there's that joy that comes from just trusting him, just trusting him that, God, I know you've got this all figured out. You knew I was going to be sick, but you are going to bring me through and you're going to, you know, bring me the strength that I need. My joy is in you and your strength. So I've learned so, so much. God never promised that we wouldn't have troubles in this world. He never did, but he promised he'd never leave us through them. So before we go and have our lunch today, I have a, um, another story of someone that's come through great struggle and has kept her joy. And so I want you to take a look at this video.
he didn't want to talk about it. He said, I'll be home at the end of the week and we can talk about it then. But one thing he did say was, I just don't want to be married anymore. Those words are very hard to hear. It was at that point that I got my family involved and I just said, we need to pray. Like, he doesn't want to be married anymore. And I don't know what to do. When I got married the summer after my sophomore year, I thought everything was going to be great. We were going to live happily ever after. It seemed perfect. And it was not long after we got married that I realized that he was not who he said he was. He started to not come home at night. And um, when I would ask him about it, he would get defensive. And he just, it seemed like he just didn't want to be there. He was doing more traveling for work and went to another state for a few months. And it was during those few months that I barely heard from him. And it came to a point where I said, I can't do this anymore. You have your son and me here, and we never even hear from you. Then right at the end of the conversation, I said, there's just one more thing I need to ask you. And I said, have you cheated on me? And he told me he had cheated on me in a lot of different ways. And then he said, and in the way that you're referring to, yes, I have. And that was such a blow. I went into the kitchen and just like fell on the floor. So I didn't know what to do with that information. Like, how do you process that? What do you do with that? After uh, a few minutes of that, <laughs> um, I said, I want to work it out. I want to work this out. And he couldn't believe it. He thought it was over. And that was why he had decided before he even came home that he didn't want to be married because he just figured it was over. I felt like God was working and I could see some changes in him and um, was hopeful that this was a fresh start. So during that period of time, we had another baby. About a year or so into that, Things started to seem like they were changing again. And he was starting to become distant again. Like everything started feeling like it was before. So we were um, going to go into counseling a couple days later. But before we did that, he said, you know, there's one thing that I want you to know before we go in. Um, I want you to know that I cheated on you again. But that's all that I feel comfortable saying. The rest I want to tell you in front of a counselor. So when we got to the counseling appointment, we just started talking about that and I asked him what more he had to say. And it was there that I found out that he cheated on me with multiple different women. And that pretty much changed the whole thing. Because if somebody can lie for that long, about those kinds of things, how do you ever trust again? Like, where do you even start? And so then I started praying a little differently. And I said, 
God, what's keeping me from filing for divorce? Why am I not after all of this? And he so clearly said, because you're afraid. And I was like, wow, I am. I'm totally afraid. I don't want to be a single mom. I don't want to be divorced. I don't want that stigma that I feel goes along with that or can go along with that. You never want to believe that like everything that you have is dead and to let it die. That would mean letting everything die that we had had together over the last seven years, seven and a half years. So that's when I checked the box for a divorce rather than a separation. I realized that it's not a matter of thinking yourself into a state of peace or a feeling of joy because then it becomes all about you. But it's a matter of surrendering, surrendering it all. All the heartache, all the trouble, all the day-to-day -day trials, laying them down and saying, God, I don't have joy on my own. I don't have peace today. So you fill me with that. You infiltrate my life with your peace and your joy. Divorce didn't mean the end of my life. It didn't mean the end of all my hopes and all my dreams. Being a single mom doesn't mean that you can't impact the world for God. It doesn't mean that there's no more hope for you. I have so many dreams and hopes and so much excitement in my life. I don't know if my life is long enough to fulfill all of them. That's true. That's a true statement. <laughs> Yeah. Lindsay, we love you. I know you're in here somewhere. I love at the end when she said, I don't know if my life's long enough for all my dreams. It's so true. No matter what you're going through, it's never over. God has a plan, amazing, amazing plans to use you. And I just want to end with this few verses from Isaiah. Chapter 61, verses 1 through 3 in the Amplified Bible. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed and qualified me to preach the gospel of good tidings to the meek, the poor, and the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up and heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison of the eyes of those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn to grant consolation and joy to those who mourn in Zion, to give them an ornament, a garland, a diadem, a sparkly diamond of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a heavy, burdened, and failing spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, lofty, strong, magnificent, distinguished for uprightness, justice, and right standing with God, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So that's my prayer for you today, that you would be strong and you would be magnificent and you would be filled with joy that only comes from God. Amen.